0: And welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is David A. Hoffman, Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. We will discuss his article, Hushing Contracts, which is co-authored with Eric Lampman and was just published in the Washington University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Dave.
1: Thanks, Brian. I'm just so excited to get to talk to you today.
0: Yeah, no, me too. You know, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of, of your work and your, your personality in, in general. So it's a real pleasure for me to have you on the line as well. And this paper is great because it's, it's super duper timely. Um, so I, I wonder for listeners who may not be familiar with the, the term that you're using, what, what exactly is a, a hush contract and, and why are people talking about them right now?
1: So um, the, the basic idea is non-disclosure uh, agreements in contracts that cover uh, sexual wrongdoing, typically entered into between organizations and individuals, although you could imagine um, a bit of a wider scope creep than that. The reason why people are talking about them um, you know, is the Me Too movement, which um, was in some ways motivated by revealing Um, Episodes, past episodes of sexual misconduct that had been covered by hush contracts. Um, So um, that ranges from the Zelda Perkins-Harvey Weinstein hush contract to the hush contracts that were covering up wrongdoing involving the U.S. Olympic team and in some ways culminated in the 2016 election with uh, hush contracts between um, uh, then-candidate Trump and a series of individuals who um, alleged Either affairs or um, one-off encounters, which um, uh, which were Michael Cohen had executed hush contracts with, and so mm-hmm. for all those reasons, it was a really timely topic for us to think about um, and to try to get our hands around what the law ought to do about these, you know, private agreements that had these big social consequences.
0: So maybe you could focus on a couple kind of paradigmatic examples of hush contracts to help listeners get a better sense of sort of the mechanics of how they tend to actually work in practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I mentioned uh, the Harvey Weinstein example, but basically um, when sometime time, um, quite a long time ago, about 20 years ago, he and his assistant, Zelda Perkins, had entered into an agreement Um, in return for about um, a quarter of a million pounds, she agreed then not to reveal that he had been a harasser. Um, And the idea was that if she ever broke that agreement, she would have to return the money that he and the organization, I think it was Miramax, had paid to her. Uh, And um, eventually, she did, in fact, break the agreement. um, And um, we all sort of know what happened next. You know, he was accused by other individuals, uh, rightfully accused by other individuals within the organization and outside of the organization, and it came to to be that he's basically a sexual predator whose ability to do so had been in some ways enabled by this contractual document, which kept one of his early accusers uh, silent, or at least paid her for for being silent. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was... Uh, our intuition in the paper that, you know, this is a relatively common thing. You get non-disclosure agreements within organizations between chief executives or high up folks and, and employees. Um, the employees are, in fact, paid. You know, they get to recover some amount of money, but other people who are not party to the contract suffer. Um, they um, later on are, are, are um, preyed upon by the non-punished, protected um, executive who has had the ability to have a pot of money from the corporate treasury to silence um, his accusers. And typically it's going to be a, you know, the, the, um, the person with the power is going to be a man and the person with not um, uh, is going to be a woman.
0: Mm, so just to be super clear, I mean, the contractual element here is that the victim is getting paid in order to buy their silence and if they break their silence, then enforcement of the contract would mean the court forcing the victim to give the money back to the to the victimizer.
1: Yeah, yeah that's exactly right. So the the victims are being paid off um, and often they're getting substantial sums, not all the time, but often they're getting quite substantial sums in return for giving up legal rights either before or after they've actually filed a lawsuit.
0: So, 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 I mean, my understanding is that you know, sort of, the traditional view is that contracts should be enforced according to the terms of the contracts, and you know, that would include hush contracts. So, sort of, what's the what's the sort of traditional utilitarian view of contract law in relation to nondisclosure agreements, to hush contracts of this kind, and why would anyone think that they should be enforced?
1: Right, they should be enforced. Well, I think that the um, you're right. So the traditional view is that you get the terms of your contract enforced if you come to court, unless there's something really outrageous about the contract. So you're not going to get a murder for hire contract. Everyone understands that that's not going to be enforceable. Contract to to uh, pay someone to commit a crime, Um, and you might not get a contract. You would definitely not get a contract in which you were selling a baby or a human being. Um, The idea would be that there are some contracts whose um, subject matter is sort of um, off the table. Um, But um, settlement agreements are traditionally favored by law on the theory that, one, we don't want parties to dispute. And so if they can agree out of court about what the result ought to be, we're going to defer to that result. Um, And second, we think that this is a way to get compensation to victims. And so Um, we believe that the court system ought to be, to the extent it can, helping victims get recovery. And we all know that litigation is awfully expensive and the result is often going to be undercompensatory. And so early settlements are, are the kinds of things that judges love and that they would typically want to enforce. And so the utilitarian view and even the non-utilitarian view, sort of lots of, um, compensatory justice based theories of law say that, um, these sorts of settlements, these sorts of agreements in which the parties make a trade, you know, silence in return for money, are net net good for both victims and for society. Um, Mm. Turns out there's not like a really rigorous, well thought out economic analysis of settlements. Um, The the work, um, the best work out there is by Scott Moss um, in a previous article, a really uh, interesting scholar, I think, who's currently at Colorado. Uh, But Mm. the, you know, the the gist is that these things ought to be enforceable. That's right. That's the prior art that we came to the part of the article with.
0: Okay. So you guys are much more skeptical in, in your paper about whether these should be enforced. And in particular, as you alluded to earlier, it seems like a big part of your concern is potential harms to third parties who don't get the benefit of entering into the contractual relationship in the first place. Is that a fair assessment?
1: Yeah, very much so. And we we basically try to think about that third party harm as attached to a contractual doctrine um, called public policy, um, which we think best read, best understood, if you look at the old precedent, um, has in it this idea of making sure that the contracts that we entered into don't create severe third party harms. Um, and if they do, they shouldn't be enforceable. That the private party's ability to Uh, make deals for themselves is limited by the externalities that those contracts create.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so before we get directly into your proposal in the paper and why you think it's the right approach, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of legislative moves that some states are making in relation to these contracts and why you think they might be more or less effective or, or desirable?
1: So uh, it's a great question. And it's a little bit of a moving target because in some ways, every week we see new legislative developments. And it's been um, since probably the beginning of the summer, since I've really looked at what the current status is and, different, um, and the statutory text changes. But I guess there's a couple big picture approaches. Um, the one that I think is relatively common is New York, which uh, almost two years ago now, um, uh, Governor Cuomo comes out with a press release, um, following, uh, law that the assembly, uh, and the state Senate agree to, which says, and he says something like, we've eliminated, um, non-disclosure agreements about sexual harassment in New York. And, uh, when you look at the law, what it really says is, um, if you're a victim of harassment and harassment is defined in a fairly typical way, you can't enter into one of these hush contracts unless you do so after a waiting period, um, and you have to have a right to sort of seek your own counsel. Uh, and in other words, you can't kind of be pushed into it, pressured into it. You could think of it as sort of like um, a three day return period for a car uh, or a door to door sales cooling off period. Very similar in orientation. Um, now, I don't think of that as actually eliminating anything. It doesn't eliminate mm-hmm. the ability to have non disclosure agreements, just slows it down a little bit and makes sure that the parties aren't pressured, which may be good, but it's not the same as eliminating it. Another approach. Um, which is probably much stronger medicine, came out of California. I think the act was passed last fall um, with an effective date of January of 2019. And what California says is once the litigation has commenced, any settlement of the litigation in the sexual harassment context cannot obscure the fact of what happened. You can, I believe under the litigation, you can obscure the settlement amount, but you can't obscure the underlying facts. You can't agree to a hush contract. After litigation is filed, it doesn't say and, and it might be that this is, you know, uh, making a bit of a, uh, a mountain out of a molehill. It doesn't say anything about pre-litigation settlements um, where the party, someone files a demand letter um, and the company pays them off. It appears under that under that legislation that the that would still be enforceable in California. And then there's a bunch of other different potential legislative solutions, including some at the federal level, which haven't gotten particularly far. Um, There's one in New Jersey. There's one in Oregon. Um, There's, I think, last we checked, like about 15 other pending acts of various degrees of, we could think of it as um, limiting uh, hush contracts across the country. And, And it might be that some of them had even passed in the last month as legislatures got back into session.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like the California one then is really just saying, don't file the litigation, just threaten to file
1: the litigation, right? Yeah, although you could imagine um, circumstances where the company sort of plays chicken with the plaintiff, mm-hmm. the plaintiff, and says, look, if you really have the goods, you have to sign the complaint. Um, the complaint requires you to tell the truth about what happens, or it's a verified complaint. Um, and, you know, we're just not sure we believe it. And it does increase the cost. So obviously, um the um, the kinds of cases in which the plaintiff is going to be able to credibly threaten a lawsuit without actually getting one are going to be quite close to those cases where the plaintiff has sophisticated counsel. Um, mm. You're not going to just go to your HR department and demand a settlement
0: Right, right, right. Um, well, so you suggest more of a common law approach than a statutory approach specifically using, a, a kind of a contract law doctrine known as a contractual public policy. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that doctrine. Cause I mean, I'm not a contract person, but it was. I was always kind of the impression that this was sort of like a disfavored way of approaching contractual decision making. But after reading your paper, I, I, I'm 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 getting the impression that maybe I was mistaken.
1: <laughs> well, it's a that's that's great in terms of the paper's uh, work, although I, I, I think probably your priors were right about the state of the law in some ways. Um, so there are a bunch of different defenses to contractual obligation. The two big tent defenses that people typically talk about are unconscionability and public policy. And public policy has been in bad, bad, um, I'd say it's been in disfavor for a long time. And the reason why it's been disfavored is because it's seen as awfully unpredictable. The theory is that if public policy, by which we mean, well, we don't know what we mean, whatever the judge wants it to mean, if the contract violates the public policy, it's not enforceable. And the old um, devastating critique of public policy is that it's an unruly horse. Once you get on its back, you don't know where it's going to take you. And that's from a the 1800s, um, and it's still repeated in casebooks today. Um, and so the thing that students of the law learn when they come to learn about contract law is, well, of course there's public policy, but if we took it seriously, it would destabilize the whole contract law regime because you know who knows what's against public policy? Who knows what judges would come to find in their heads are the kinds of contracts that we shouldn't find enforceable? And what we try to do in the article is say, well, yeah it's disfavored um, and yeah it's not predictable um, in some ways. if you look at the recorded cases, you know there's a, a volume of the Corbin treatise which is just public policy and there's something like 135 different categories by which he really means examples of cases in which public policy has denied enforcement. Yeah, that's true but maybe we can draw some general themes from those many different kinds of cases into something that's going to feel a little bit less destabilizing.
0: Mm -hmm. So so, to the way – to to the extent you were able to sort of pin down or formalize sort of a particular conception of public policy that you think might might make it more manageable and specifically more manageable in this particular context, sort of – I mean how do you think we should be thinking about public policy from a kind of doctrinal theoretical perspective?
1: So – and I don't think we're the first ones to say this, although I think we're the first ones to say it in quite so many pages – but our argument is essentially that public policy, if you look at the run of cases, is about um, particularly severe examples of third-party harm that the parties are simply outsourcing upon society at large. So the example, the best case for us that I, I you know, I really, um, I really liked and I thought it is easy to understand, um, is a case in which um, a hospital system, um, and the case um, is. Got like a G in his name, Gina Gina versus Hospital Saint Raphael. So in a case, basically, a nurse is working for a hospital system and and really messes up, has serious medical administration errors. They don't do the drug dosing very well, and someone gets hurt. Um, and then the nurse is terminated. And as a part of the sort of the termination with the original hospital, the employer agrees not to disclose the fact that they were terminated involuntarily for for negligence. Um, and eventually this, this nurse applies for a new job. Um, and the former employer um, is called for a reference check um, by the new nursing home or the new hospital. And the new hospital says to the old hospital, like, look, is there anything we ought to know? And the old hospital says, gosh, I got to tell you, yes, you know, this person's a, a serious risk of, of causing patient harm. And the, the nurse sues his old employer. Saying mm. breach of contract, you know, you violated the term of our settlement, our our settlement in which you promised not to say that I had committed medical errors, and the the old employer says, "Gosh, that's true, but you we really shouldn't be held to that contract because of the public harm that it potentially occasions," and it goes in front of a court, and I think the nurse wins for other reasons, but as a part of that. Um, decision, the court says, look, a patient in the hospital is frequently helpless and dependent on the nurses assigned to care for him. Any patient would surely hope that hospitals hiring nurses would have full information. It's no answer to the patient's legitimate concerns that a contract of silence is mutually advantageous between the nurse and the employer. If contractual uh, provisions like this are judicially enforceable, some of the most vulnerable people in our society, patients in hospitals, will be inevitably exposed to a risk of physical harm. And that's the intuition of the paper, is that if Mm. the parties reach agreement between themselves that externalizes physical harms of physical uh, violence on others or sexual violence on others, it's no answer at all that it's good for them. Mm. Of course it's good for them. That's why they entered into the deal. But just because that's so does not mean courts have to enforce it and they should presumptively not enforce it. So that's, Mm. that's the gist of our paper. So so as a
0: practical matter, how would that play out in the context of the kinds of hush contracts you're talking about specifically in relation to sexual harassment or sexual violence? Would it mean that they would never be enforceable or would there would there be distinctions between when that would be an option for the victim and victimizer
1: and when it wouldn't be? So the great thing about the common law is I don't have to give you an answer to that ex ante. Um, so one of the things that we'll, we would see is, you know, different courts would have different ways of working out this principle in particular cases. But what I think in broad strokes would be um, the particularly bad cases of harassment where you've got very vulnerable victims. So, for example, the minors in the case of Larry Nasser and the U.S. Olympic team, um, or you have... A, a relationship where you have a, a particularly um, vulnerable employee, someone who's, who's down the totem pole, um, and you have a um, physical violence attached to the sexual sort of part of the relationship where you have sort of assault, um, those are cases in which probably presumptively courts are not going to enforce the agreements. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean they wouldn't have payments to victims what you would have instead of one lump sub in the beginning and then uh, a sort of a lifelong contract of silence would be a series of payments over time, not enforceable in court. You would never be able to require anyone to be silent. But if the victim won the money next month, they would not talk. And so you would have a different system than the one we have now, where you have essentially lump sums followed by court enforced non-disclosures. Instead, you would have a pretty privatized um, system of one-off payments to to victims. Um, And, you know, the the question about whether that on net is going to cause fewer victims to get paid is a hard one. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to be open to the possibility that it would. I mean, that under our proposal, fewer victims of sexual um, harassment at work would probably get payoffs um, and they would get less money. And the hope is that the result of the system would be Um, There's actually fewer also incidents of the kind of spiraling incidents of um, uh, bad behavior that were so in the news in the Me Too movement, that the organizational cultures that are founded on silence um, and oppression would be harder to maintain.
0: Mm -hmm. But I do wonder if like, if the organization and the victimizer could use the offer of kind of recurring payments as a kind of carrot to prevent victims from disclosing, uh, you know, to what, it, you know, would that limit the ability to sort of prevent the externalization of harms? That seems to be part of the goal of the proposal. I mean, it seems like it'd be, you'd, you'd see more defecting, I guess, right. Cause it's kind of harder to maintain.
1: Yep. I mean, it's, that a, relationship. One, it's not a complete solution. There's just no way. I mean, even if you make things on, illegal, um, mm. you can't prevent people from having deals that don't come to court. Right. So um, yes, the, the the fact that parties are going to make their own side deals and have them not be enforceable is, an, is a weakness in our proposal. No question about it. I think mm. the question that you should ask is, you know, net Net, net, sort of at equilibrium, are we going to have more or less examples of companies paying off uh, victims under our proposal than under the status quo? And I think the answer is almost certainly you'd have f- fewer examples. Yeah. So it'd be like an, like an improvement on the margins. That's, that's, and that's what I'm going for most of the times in my life. <laughs>
0: The margins always matter, right? The margins
1: matter. That's exactly right. One, one right. bad tweet a day is my my.
0: <laughs> so are there, are there particular contexts that you could ad- imagine where we might think or expect or kind of want courts to say, no, this particular kind of NDA is enforceable because it isn't externalizing harms in the way that the ones we don't want to enforce are?
1: So somewhat to my surprise, I, I have to say, I think that the Trump NDAs maybe are examples of that. Um, and so it's true that hiding information from the public about you know, your, um, what's going on in your marriage and what's going on in your private life reduces the information that voters have about you. Um, and so in that way, and, and it's obviously embarrassing, and there's reasons why the Trump and the Trump Organization paid off um, you know, Stormy Daniels um, and the uh, and, um, But it's not obvious that the, the underlying behavior there is of the sort where you'd be worried about organizational cultures of predation. Um, the, these are sort of from what I can tell, consensual affairs, not with employees of the organization. They are not covering what I think of as illegal sexual harassment covered by the employment discrimination laws. There's not, at least as far as I can tell in the public record, lots of evidence or really any evidence that part of what's being covered up are physical violence by Trump himself against any of the people with whom he had affairs. And so I don't think that Trump's NDAs actually fall in the category of prohibited by public policy, much much to my surprise when I started writing the article. The article was in a lot of ways motivated by reading all the stuff in the news about those NDAs and saying to myself, gosh, there must be something law can do. Um, and there is things that law can do, but maybe not contract law.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Well, so are there are there reasons to think that this kind of common law approach through the contractual public policy doctrine would be more desirable or more effective than some of the different kinds of legislation that some states have enacted or are considering enacting?
1: So I, I'm not sure that I, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. Here, I'll give you two thoughts to it. One of them is, of course, it's actually really hard to pass statutory law. Um, the risk of error is huge. The number of competing interests um, who are lobbying you on either side of the equation um, and lots of veto points, and lots of legislatures, even if you have um, you know, all three, if you have a trifecta in your state who want to do the thing, it can be hard to do. And the worry that you might have about um, statutory solutions is that if you if you get it wrong, if you make the balance wrong, it's hard to undo as well. It's hard to fix law, just as it's hard to pass it. The advantage to common law is if you have a decision that gets it wrong, you can reverse the decision the next day. Um, mm-hmm. Especially if you're doing old-fashioned contract common law, um, uh, it's not particularly hard to issue a new ruling. And so there's a bit of a, a harm mitigation principle um, here, even though people often say the other side of it, which is that law ought not to do policy like this. One underappreciated, at least in my view, underappreciated virtue of common law policy making um, is that it's stepwise um, and you can't go too far wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, it does seem like maybe that the very unruliness and unpredictability of the public policy doctrine could actually be an advantage in this context. And so far as we might not really feel like we're confident about what the answer should be in every particular circumstance. And it seems like each one of these problems is pretty unique and distinctive.
1: Yep. Yep. And so it's all cabined. You can't, I mean, one, thing that law students often say about the law is that it's inherently conservative. You really can't make dramatic change um, within the common law system. And that's true. Um, And the way to think of this is it's a feature, not a bug. Um, You know, you um, you can't make dramatic change. You also can't screw things up quite so badly quickly.
0: Mm. Well, so so one question that I had about about the proposal um and it struck me that like some people might be concerned if from the victim's perspective there might be things that are undesirable about not being able to maintain a effective NDA mm-hmm. agreement. Right? I mean, especially insofar as, you know, sort of the the initial assumption is that the victim would otherwise want to disclose, but I could imagine some victims who would prefer to maintain the confidentiality and privacy of their experiences, and kind of not be out in the spotlight like that.
1: Yeah, uh, it's a real problem, um, and I, you know, I, the article at least tries to suggest some reasons why um, we essentially are going to, um, I maybe bypass isn't quite the right word, but we're going to um, permit the victim's privacy to not count in quite the way that we would in other sorts of contexts. And there are worries about re-victimization for sure. Um, I guess I'd say that the article is triggered, or rather the the proposal is triggered by people who want to enlist the help of the formal legal system. And we have all kinds of conditions on the use of the formal legal system um, in other contexts. So for example, EEOC proceedings have to be public. They can't be private. Um, And, you know, victims and companies can make private deals. They can make private deals that contain within them promises about non-disclosure. What they can't do is have those deals sanctioned, at least under our theory, by um, publicly paid um, uh, judges. And the The proposal is motivated by the intuition that we have seen lots of examples of how um, private parties doing what's best for themselves um, make the world worse for others. And uh, I think that this might be an example of that situation where we have a generation of settlement practice, um, a generation of nondisclosure practice, And now we're learning that we've got a bunch of different organizations whose cultures have been corrupted, who have people who left the workforce because they knew about the open secret within the organization but weren't allowed to talk about it, who weren't promoted because the people who were harassers were left in place by virtue of the settlement agreements that had been signed. And so I, you know, I'm sensitive to the idea that this This proposal is harsh medicine. I mean, it definitely extracts a price and it attracts a price from victims in a way. Um, But the theory is that there are victims who are not yet um, in front of us and we need to be paying attention to them as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and if I understand it correctly, I mean, it's not that it will be impossible for victims to form agreements that would enable them to maintain confidentiality and privacy if that is something that they really value. It just won't
1: have the same sanction from the formal legal system. Yeah, that's it. And they can always do month to month are we're, we're week to week or goodness knows on blockchain, minute to minute payments for not talking
0: yeah. 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 Cool. Well, it was really clever, cool paper and um, super timely. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it, Dave.
1: I, I really appreciate getting a chance to to be on this podcast, which is a real favorite of mine. Thanks so much for hosting me, Brian, and um, look forward to seeing you on Twitter soon. <music>
0: We'll be Too so hard to talk about, you can hide your fears and tears, you can even scream and shout. All your turn, then you're true confessions. Don't look so surprised. You've been me lies, it's hard to wake up to your makeup. So you can sleep up that disguise. all your turn, <makes noise> your true confessions.